0: Welcome to Mandy the ABA and Aditi the OT's podcast. We are two women across two time zones from two cultures, two allied health fields offering two very different perspectives.
1: Yet we have a common goal of breaking down barriers and creating breakthroughs to promote interprofessional collaboration. Hello, OT's, ABA's, OTA's, RBT students, educators and collaborators. For today's episode, I'm going to add another C or two, uh, to consider consequences. So while the ABCs of behavior have become so commonplace in both the ABA and OT world, there are some limitations of the true understanding of what we actually need to focus on. Antecedents versus consequences or both. There is this misconception. That's what we wanted to sort of clear today. The respective principles of ABA and OT can present a very dichotomous view, right? Where OTs might tend to look more at antecedents, whereas ABAs tend to take a keener look at consequences. And to make things a little more interesting, often with many of our the clients, there's this additional layer of sensory seeking, aversive aspects, which can make things. A lot more perplexing for all of us. So, um, as we delve into this, just a little reminder once again, we're not here to make anyone wrong or right, but instead shed some light on different perspectives. So, hopefully, our conversations are continuing to spark the three C's curiosity to learn more, consider another approach, and get comfortable with the discomfort of collaboration. All right, well, let's take a, lo- a deeper look into the ABCs of behavior and attempt to answer the following clinical questions using ABCs to figure out if behavior is sensory or just a behavior or both, 2 how to get assent with your clients, 3 how to modify ABCs to improve client progress.
0: How does that sound Mandy? Yeah, that's, that's some good questions to answer. <laughs> Hopefully, we won't have to use the pause button today, again. I know. We'll see. <laughs> I'm not
1: holding my breath. Um, and so, we have a lovely shout-out that Mandy found. I'm so
0: excited about this. Share it with us, please. Yeah, sure. i sending a shout-out today. Well, seems unusual to send a shout-out to the World Health Organization, <laughs> but they have... Uh, busy people at the moment, produced a self-help package called Self-Help Plus or SH Plus and it was developed to address the sort of adverse conditions existing in many countries around the world. Uh, It was developed by the WHO to meet the challenges of delivering an evidence-based mental health package for areas experiencing conflict or disaster-affected areas where there are people that, both with mental disorders and without to give an intervention to address these challenging conditions. The approach is based on acceptance and commitment therapy, which we're going to be looking at talking about uh, coming up. It's a modern form of cognitive behavioural therapy that focuses on increasing psychological flexibility, primarily through mindfulness exercises, and it promotes behaviours that are in line with a person's values There are two components to this intervention that the World Health Organization have developed, a recorded audio component, and then a self-help guide with recorded exercises that you can do. I did this with my team. I want to give another shout out to Russ Harris because he was uh, involved in developing this. He's an act practitioner that has published many, many things, including a book called The Happiness Trap. And this guide is called Doing What Matters in Times of Stress and it contains acceptance and commitment therapy protocols and little recorded exercises for doing things like grounding or diffusion, which comes from ACT. It's really good. I've done it with my team. You don't have to know anything about ACT to be able to go through this guide and develop little exercises either for yourself or your team or even your students. And, yeah, I would recommend it. We will put a link in our show notes to the World Health Organization website that contains the guide. And I recommend it to those of you that are wanting to introduce uh, an intervention to address stress, anxiety, difficult times. Love it. I'm actually taking the
1: beginner's course right now by Russ Harris. So I'm completely in agreement with everything that you've shared. And, you know, I did a course on microaggressions in therapeutic setting. And the reason I wanted to learn more about actors, how to sort of ameliorate those using the ACT principles. So super interesting. And yeah, he's got some amazing work out there. So Thank you for that. All right, let's get cracking about the ABCs. So I know in previous episodes, we've talked a lot about sort of reflexive behavior, right? Like someone blows in our face, we blink, a loud sound happens, we flinch, you know, we step on Legos and we jump. Uh, There's no learning needed with these sort of reflexive behaviors and how we respond. So this is reflexive or respondent learning. From what I understand in behavior analysis, is that what behavior analysts consider sensory
0: in the ABA world? Yeah, this is, I didn't want to use a pause button <laughs> because <laughs> what, I, what I did, <laughs> what you're describing there is exactly as you said, like a, an antecedent or a stimulus with an immediate response. Nothing has to consequent that behavior for it to occur. You gave some good examples there. If we went back to our episode and looked at, you know, learning from birth, we're just born with a whole lot of behavior that ensures our existence, breathing, suckling, uh, responding to bright lights. Those things are kind of behaviors that we, at least what a behavior would say we're born with to survive. And they would have been, you know, mechanisms that were evolved into us to ensure our existence because babies are other than breathing and feeding, there's not a lot they can do to fend for themselves. So after that, as consequences or things start occurring after behaviour, then we can start to look at what we call in, because we're analysts and we have to use complicated terms, operant conditioning. (laughs) In other words, a consequence occurs after a behaviour and it determines whether that behaviour occurs again. On the issue of sensory here, I think it's time for me to say this, I think. I've been trying to work out and come to terms with this distinction that OTs tend to make, which is, is this a behaviour or is it sensory? And I, that's why we've had to use this, the pause button so many more times. So I feel like it's time to squeeze the pimple, get it out there. And I think what I'm coming to terms with, with all of my discussion around this issue, is I think what OTs are saying is, and obviously I don't want to put words in anyone's mouth, so correct me if I'm wrong indeedy, but... Is this behavior something, something that the student is doing, is it occurring as a result of interacting with another person or is it just occurring, the student is doing it without any social mediation? I think maybe that's the distinction that might be meaningful because if you think about anything that we do, it's all sensory. And as a behavior analyst, Aditi, you might be surprised that I'm saying that, but even if we're in a box with no light and no one interacting with us, we still have senses. We're still engaging with the environment. So you know, every single thing we do has a sensory component to it. So I think what maybe this distinction of sensory and behavior is, isn't something maintained by another human being? Is there some social element to this behavior? Or if you put you know a person in a room on their own, is it they're doing it anyway, without any assistance from somebody else. Maybe that is a distinction that OTs are trying to make when they say it's behavior or it's sensory. Do you want to respond to that, Aditi? I'm scared to (laughs) because (laughs) the reality is I absolutely
1: can see your perspective and it does make sense. However, I think OT's And again, I'm generalizing for everyone, so I can only speak for myself. I think we tend to think of it is that if it's truly a sensory behavior, they can't really control it. Like it's a
0: need. Does that make it worse? I don't know. I get really stuck there because that's something that's very difficult to observe and take data on. And of course, all of our episodes are about trying to ensure that we're not guessing that we actually have data to support our conclusions. So, yeah, so I get stuck on the issue of need, sensory. Let's continue because I think when we start looking at consequences, then that's going to help with that type of discussion. And I really think that's why OTs have started looking
1: at the ABCs of behaviour because at some level it helps them sort of delineate that, okay, it might just be not be something their body needs in their language, but maybe there are other variables at play here. So I do think it's really amazing that OTs have stepped out of the box of everything
0: is sensory. How does this discussion start to come about, Aditi? When you say they've started to look at, I want to say consequences, Mm -hmm. uh, because from a behavioralist perspective, we will generally say it's the consequence of some, you know, what happens after behavior determines whether it occurs again so you can establish and change things prior to a behavior to either make a behavior more likely or to reduce the likelihood of it occurring but it's really what happens after behavior that you know determines continuity of that behavior you know when you say ot's have started to look at those things how do you think that discussion has come about or that movement has come about in ot
1: there's so much Empathy for the client. And I'm not by any means saying ABAs are not empathetic, but we are always looking at, you know, it's the person, occupation, and environment. Those are our three principles. So when we look at the environment and we go, okay, what's preventing them from participation? Sometimes it's a physical disability. And other times, and you know, it's a sensory disability where they just can't tolerate X or Y. And and so I think that's where it comes from, because the first thing we look at is the environment. And so antecedents are what we look at more than consequences. And I think once we interacted with ABAs, and perhaps it started at the same time. I'm not sure. It did for me. I can only speak personally. I worked with an ABA therapist and she opened my eyes to that. I was not aware at all. And when she opened my eyes to the consequence of what I was suggesting, that's where we clashed. And I was able to sort of take her purview a bit. But it is about starting with the environment and the uh, physiological condition of the person
0: this is very familiar terminology to a behavior analyst so we consider the environment to be primary establishing an environment evokes behavior and then something occurs after a behavior generally it's rare that nothing happens <laughs> if it, if somebody does something generally something is changing in the environment and that environment could be internal a person saying something or doing something to themselves but generally something changes. It's rare that we do something and nothing at all happens. You know, we breathe, we interact with the environment. Our senses are always interacting with the environment. So, But what I will attribute BF Skinner to that, but of course there's a lot of work that looked at consequences, was that in particular, I think I've mentioned this before, but Oglinsley and others did work to show that uh, they went into psychiatric institutions and there were patients there with engaging in lots of psychotic speech and often also hoarding items, and they change the consequence in response to those behaviours occurring. So, um, you know, if a a client was engaging in psychotic speech, they removed attention when they were engaged in that psychotic speech and provided lots and lots of attention when they weren't engaged. In other words, they got lots of pleasant things in the presence of behaviour they wanted to see more of and less pleasant consequences when they're engaged in behavior that was determined not to be in the client's best interest. And guess what happened? There was less psychotic speech. Mm -hmm. And so the nurses delivered attention and all of the great stuff contingent on behavior that they wanted to see more of. And they got more of that behavior. And so, you know, a paradigm came about Of course, our science comes from laboratories, so it wasn't just human work. There was work with animals as well to show that what happens after behaviour determines whether it occurs again. And that's the most important contingency. It's certainly how humans evolved. You know, we run into a brick wall. We learn not to do that again for lots of different reasons, pain and otherwise. We touch a hot stove. Very quickly, we learn not to do that again. Um, We avoid unpleasant circumstances that in the past evoke pain and other unpleasant trees and so this consequence of what happens after behavior is critical to how we start to engage with the environment in the future and you can see this very early on with a baby that seeks out mum's attention that learns how to smile you know those things are all determined by what happens after behavior so so yeah the environment is everything and what behavior analysts gives us is a way of determining what is the consequence that's occurring. And why is that important? So that we can establish an environment that strengthens rewards, if you want to use that, behavior that we want to see more of, and weakens behavior that we want less of. So yeah, it's always get my parents that come in for parent training to learn the three most important words, and that is the consequence matters. So when you're trying to determine, why is this student doing this thing? You know, why is this occurring? The first question to look at is, well, what is the consequence? It's the consequence that matters. And I teach my parents that the three most important words that you can put in your repertoire, the consequence matters. And so we have this whole science that helps us decide what is the consequence? And if the behavior is something we want less of, or there is a behavior that we want more of, we need to look at what's occurring after behavior to either strengthen it or weaken it. And I think those are all valid points and I don't think any OT would
1: disagree with that. I think it's it's the why, right? So why is
0: Johnny poking his eye? Let's go back a little bit there because if that is something that's familiar to OTs, in other words, we have a behavior that we don't wanna see again, I think this is where behavior analysts really struggle when they look at some OT interventions. Is that very frequently pleasant things occur in an OT environment after a behavior that you don't want to see again? In other words, things like deep pressure massage. So a child self injures, and this is at least my sessions that I've had with OTs, they want to make it more pleasant for the student in the moment. Now, That is not to say that that is not the student telling you something very important. But if you make it more pleasant for them immediately after that behavior, what you just confirmed for me then is, well, we're more likely to see that again. Like, you know, if I taste strawberry, the most amazing strawberry ice cream from a particular shop, you know, I'm going to seek out that shop again. So if something pleasant happens for me after I engage in like a head hit or a bite and all of a sudden I get deep pressure massage and I'd like deep pressure massage mm-hmm. what a behavior analyst will say is well this is not the student going oh I'm going to bite and therefore it will get more pleasant for me no we evolved to do stuff that feels pleasant or things get better for us so if the consequence is important then we have to make sure that we don't deliver it a pleasant consequence after a behaviour that we don't want to see again so if these terms are easy to understand. It should be easy to understand providing positive or pleasant attention. You want to do that in the presence of behavior that you want more of or not provide it when a behavior occurs that you don't want more of. That's what's important that I don't see OTs coming in contact with. Now, okay, that's a big statement, but I think if you want to talk about, and this is where Aditi, you're always saying, we don't wanna make anybody wrong here, but if there is a big divide between the ABA world and the OT world, it's that. That's the big one. If you're gonna put interventions in place and look at their effectiveness, don't do it immediately in the presence of behavior that you don't want more of if it's potentially a pleasant consequence to that student. Do it prior to the behaviour. You know, if you want to use these interventions that um, OTs will often use, like deep pressure massage or what are some other ones, DD, you know, uh, sensory toys, it's important when you deliver that consequence, not that we don't think that we shouldn't, you know, try interventions and measure their effectiveness. We're all about that. But it's the timing of the delivery of them that's where ABAs get excited for one of a better way.
1: So when I have a client, you know, uh, with a sensory issue, I use the ABCs in two ways. Like at first I will just observe and then I'll look at the ABCs and see what's going on because I want to figure out why are they doing what they're doing? What is the consequence they're getting? And obviously liking that consequence because they keep doing it. And then once I know the consequence, and say I realize the consequence is escape, then I you know I know that there's a behavioral aspect to this, and I realize that say I realize the consequence is more of a sensory need. They like the feeling of you know rubbing their skin or whatever. Um, then you're absolutely right. I've learned over time that I wouldn't put any sort of sensory intervention in right after the behaviour occurs. I would always do it as an antecedent.
0: Okay, but you say there that the student likes it. And that's a big assumption, isn't it? And also you just, you use a lot of behavioural, t- <laughs> yeah, you used a lot of behavioural analysis there, a which some OTs may not be familiar with. So you mentioned escape. So let's talk about that. There's, there's two really good points that you brought up there. The first point is looking at an antecedent that's the A and the ABC. That is something that happens immediately prior to a behaviour. Some examples here, you know, I see a red light, a stoplight. I'm going to put my foot on the brake because in the past I learned or I learned from rules that the consequence is not very pleasant if I go through a red light. Or um, I walk into a dark room and, you know, the antecedent, the darkness, causes me, be careful with my use of my terminology there, <laughs> to turn on, on a light because in the past when I turn on light, you know, I either avoided bumping into something or it helped me find something. So, you know, those antecedents are something that happened immediately before a behaviour. Then I've either learnt to do a behaviour from consequences in the past or I do a behaviour for the first time. And then there is a consequence. That's a very simplistic view of the world, of course, because never, very unlikely, is there ever just one antecedent one behavior and one consequence but it is a way of trying to establish what the primary consequence is and what was happening in the environment immediately before a behavior to try and determine what's occurring in the environment but we only know you know it sometimes things occur once and that you know reinforces or strengthens a behavior but generally, behavior occurs over time. And the only way we can look at what the consistent consequences is to have data. And the only way we can take data is to define clearly what the behavior is that you're trying to determine the cause of it. So you put a really nice explanation there. But to make it meaningful, to make it measurable, you know, you have to be con- really precise about what you're observing and then we go back to things like the dead person's test is it a behavior at all that's occurring something that's measurable if you say the student is stressed you know that's not something you can easily measure if the student is anxious if the student has a need those things are someone else's view but not something that's measurable repeatable over time so Those ABCs are something that can easily be shouted off or we're taking ABCs, but really you can only determine the consequence of something if you can measure it, you can define it, and the behaviour is occurring over time. I think that's an important message here that behavioralists are trying to say is that if you say something like a student needs it, they would be seeking it out consistently. It would be something, a behaviour that you can measure And very frequently, you can't measure a sensory need and that you can observe it, you can take data on it and determine if it's occurring over time. And you
1: will not get any um, backlash from me there. I mean, I I think every single OT out there is like, I wish there was a way to measure sensory aspects. That's the whole problem is that we have a hard time finding a way to make it observable and measurable.
0: But But stop there because (laughs) if you're doing science, you can hypothesize, right? So you could hypothesize, for instance, that we think it's sensory, what an intervention might be to consequate it. So you want a student to do something, they have a sensory need of some sort. We consequate it with, what you're hypothesizing is a need, and if the behavior strengthens, if you want it to strengthen, then your hypothesis could be proven as opposed to uh, by taking data. So if you say the student needs to press into Play-Doh or needs to have deep pressure massage, and you provide it contingent on a behavior that you want to see more of, then you would expect the behavior to increase. So there is a way of measuring yeah, those hypotheses that you come up with. The problem is that most people don't do that. They just assume. Right. And and it's because they
1: don't know. Like, I mean, no one's ever broken it down for us in the OT world, you know, to measure it. But exactly what you said is what I did in the schools this past year. Um, I have a student who the teacher says, you know, He's rocking at a rate of 150 times in a minute. I measured it. And then she said, well, can you put a sensory intervention in? And I was like, I can, but I need to figure out if it's working because I can put random things in all the time. And so I had him just put a cushion between the chair and his back. That's it. That's all I did. And then using the chart, I was able to measure if that behavior increased or decreased. And the first date, it decreased. But then three, four days later, he went back to doing what he was doing. So absolutely. I think that's where I love precision teaching. I love the chart because it can quantify some of my sensory hypotheses as you so rightly mentioned. I think it really helps in that scenario.
0: So let's just go back. That's a very good example. I know we're gonna do a case study shortly. Did you hypothesize as to why he was rocking? That he needed that vestibular input to pay attention.
1: Right. Because the teacher said to me, she said, you know, we've tried so many things and he's not paying attention. He just sort of zones out, but it seems like he needs that. And I, I don't know if he does or not. I have no idea. So I was like, well, I'm happy to try something, but I will take data. And I was able to recruit the teacher aids to help me with that process.
0: All of the time, things are occurring in the environment that result in people engaging in behaviour of a word. Let's just take this student that you were talking about that's engaging in high rates of rocking. You know, Assuming that he did that in the classroom when he was left on his own devices, when people presented tasks to him, that there was high rates of rocking, what we might be able to say is, well, there's something that he is being deprived of. There's something that's motivating him to engage in those behaviours, which we have determined are interruptive. You know, saying that the child doesn't have attention is, you know, a big uh, statement. But let's just say this child is deprived of either attention or arousal, for one of a better word. In other words, they're engaging this behaviour to maintain a level of Engagement with the environment so that they feel good. As we said before, our adage, both of our adages, are the student is always right. So, you know, the first thing I guess you would want to look at this is a highly interruptive behaviour. It's happening at high rate. You measured it. It's querying at one hundred and fifty. What you did there was put in place an antecedent intervention of a cushion to see if it impacted the student. Could that? cushion do something that is reducing the, basically what you're doing there, is reducing the pleasantry of the rocking and giving them, making them less motivated to rock. Or what the student could be telling you there is, I need something to do. <laughs> like my motivation is I'm doing something because I'm motivated. The, the, I am deprived of either attention or some sort of input to my life. You know, so the antecedent intervention might be, okay, let's keep this guy busy, let's give him attention for staying on task, let's consequate him when he's not rocking and see what happens. Because any of us left to our own devices will do something, you know, it's unless you're an incredible meditator or an uh, incredible ability to sit still, and of course that is a skill in itself, But we need to engage in the environment to stay awake and to be effective to be able to interact. So if we can't get reinforcement or we can't get consequences of talking or, you know, engagement, social engagement, um, completing a task, engage in enjoyable activity, we're going to do something. So this contingency, what we call kind of a four term contingency is let's look what's occurring in the environment that's making a student more likely to engage in that behavior. Are they deprived of something or are they satiated on something? This motivating variable before the behavior, looking at the environment is very important to the key uh, to determine why the student is engaging. For instance, so I'll give you an example that I use in parent training. Um, if I see someone madly running around to look for a doll or you know something to improve a headache, pause right there, it would be a yeah. Tylenol here, just so, so everyone okay, knows. Okay, thank you. Is. Sorry, <laughs> Tylenol, pain relief <laughs> yes. medication. Yeah, for us Aussies, Panadol or <laughs> Nurofen. Um, if I see someone madly looking in their bag or running to a cupboard where, you know, the first aid cupboard to look for a pill, I would say they're motivated. In other words, what has occurred in the environment is they are in pain and they're now engaging in behaviour to get Panadol when before they weren't. So this motivating variable is something that makes the behaviour more likely or less likely to occur. So that contingency, I think this is something that OTs are familiar with. Let's look at the environment. If we have a behaviour that's occurring at that high rate, what's occurring in the environment? What's the setting event or something that's... What's the motivation for that behaviour? And how is it getting consecrated? Now, this... I've already said the consequence is the thing that's most important. But in looking at those ABCs, if you have a behaviour that's high rate like that, what is the motivating variable that's making that behaviour more likely to occur? And so let's go back a little bit there. So did you eventually get a reduction in that behaviour?
1: Yes and no. So I'll, I'll go into that. But first I just wanted to mention that I really wanted to talk to him first and go, you know, Johnny, do you know you're rocking this much? And he was quite aware of it. And I said, you know, why are you doing it? And he told me, well, I just like it. I like how it feels. It helps me. And I'm like, okay, but do you know it's very disruptive to the classroom and the teachers and the other students? And is this something you would like to try to stop doing uh, during your day at school? And I didn't, we did notice that he did it more during math class versus other classes. So I really targeted the, the period he was doing it a lot in. So, you know, getting a scent was really important because I was like, I don't want, I, I know I'm going to lose this battle if he, he doesn't care about it. That was the first thing. And then the second thing to answer your question, did it get better? It did for like two days. Um, I had the teacher's aides take data for two days And it did come down. I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it did come down somewhat. But then it went right back up. So I've seen this a lot. Whenever I put a sensory intervention in, often the novelty is what changes that behavior for a few days. And then it spikes right back up and goes back to what it was. So what does that tell you? (laughs) Yep, that it
0: wasn't really (laughs) a sensory intervention. I mean, it wasn't an effective sensory intervention. It wasn't an f- effective intervention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, what a behavioralist would do is go and observe without the intervention and go, okay, what is the consequence that he's getting? Because I would find it very difficult to believe that there is not a te- either escape from the task involved or attention being provided to that rocking. Because when if you have a student engaging, did you say 150 times 150 per minute? 150 times, yep. And I measured it. I mean, it. that's... <laughs> very high rate behavior, even to measure. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to measure rate that's occurring at that rate, but behavior, certainly for an untrained person. But assuming that that really was occurring for intervals of time. I videoed it, just so you know. I videoed uh, yeah, it. and, caught,
1: and, and I it. Yes, and then I... I cross-checked with Jonathan Amy, who's one of my mentors, to help yeah. me figure that out. Just so you know, cool. even though yeah, I'm not I'm a novice here. at this, I did and use my resources and figured it out. So it was an accurate representation of how often he was doing it, at least in the range of how and often. And was that
0: the started. highest rate at which it was occurring?
1: Yes, it was. And as I said, math class.
0: And were you able to determine when it was occurring? You said it was occurring more frequently in math? In math, and I do think there was an
1: escape element because, you know, he was sort of A, zoning off, not listening to the teacher, and then not doing his work because you can't do it while you're rocking. Obviously, you can't do your math worksheet while you're rocking. So there was, but then I'm also trying to navigate that with the teacher because like the first day when I observed him, the first few weeks I remember when I observed him just to see what was going on, There wasn't any overt attention. Like the teacher just ignored his rocking because he's been doing it for so long. She just ignored it. She never said anything. He just did it. But I do think he was missing homework or missing work during those sessions.
0: Yeah, it is pretty hard to rock at that rate and do anything else. (laughs) Yes. You think about now, if you're just rocking back and forward, you know, some of us get fluent at. I'm a finger picker, so and a nail picker, which I've uh, managed to overcome with self-management. But you know, when you're engaged in it at that rate, it's hard to maintain good attention to anything else. So uh, I guess that's when we look in the environment and go, "Okay, well, why is this behaviour occurring? What's the consequence of it? If 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 there's nothing being consecrated, although remembering always that as soon as you're observing a teacher in a classroom, something has changed in the environment. And mm-hmm. I know when I go into classrooms. And start observing students it changes the way teachers respond to students when someone else is observing but forgetting that component
1: so let me tell you the other thing we tried so then i had him put a ball between the back of his chair and his back so that he was became more aware when he started rocking because the ball would fall right and he loved that. That was a fun game for him. I was like, if you can keep the ball there for 10 minutes of math class, that means you're doing good. And that became a fun game for him. And he and I definitely saw obviously the um rocking decline significantly. So it, it was really it was great to have some interventions to try out, but it was even better to have data to support what I was doing and figure out this is working or it's not working. And at the end of the day, we ended up just doing a standing desk because it was just, he couldn't rock. There was
0: no back to rock on. So that's where it ended up. But anyway. Okay, let's just go back to that and just talk a little bit about this intervention. So basically what you did is you observed a behaviour and what you did is you put in place what a behaviour would call an antecedent intervention. You changed something. Uh, prior to the behaviour occurring, you put in place a number of things in the environment to see if it would reduce the behaviour, but still haven't changed the consequence of what's occurring when that behaviour is unfolding. What you say is, well, we might have blocked the behaviour for a period of time or distracted it, but as soon as we removed that intervention, the behaviour came back. And so that's not a permanent change in the behaviour it's still occurring in the absence. So that's why it's the consequence that matters. Whatever he's getting out of that after the behaviour is determining that it's going to occur again. So it's a consequence that needs to change. So I'm just going to throw out there are a few things that you could have tried. If you're saying that this behaviour is maintained by what we call automatic reinforcement or it's, it's immediately reinforcing to the student and nothing else has to happen for the student to do that behaviour... Mm-hmm although I question that because it's at higher rates in different classes, but let's just assume that for now. Then one of the things that you talked about there is like self-management you raised, making the student aware of their behaviour. And that is something that we do many times is try to bring awareness to the behaviour and you can do that lots of different ways. But talking about what the behaviour is, you did that really good. The uh, Making the student aware of it, being able to identify it, engaging it, not engaging it so that the child is aware that they're doing or student. And you know you can do that by having the student count the data or give them feedback about it. But you still want to consequate it. There has to be some consequence when the student is not engaged in it. So teachers will say, catch them being good or deliver a positive reinforcer of some sort when the student is not doing it or at a lower rate. This kid is engaging in 150 responses per minute. First of all, you wanna make sure that the environment is highly motivating, that it's a pleasant environment. The student is engaged in the task. That would be my intervention. That There's no skill deficits that's preventing the student actively engaging, able to recruit feedback. But then the consequence should be as well, let's ensure that something pleasant happens when the behavior is reducing. And so, you know, looking at that rate of behaviour, go, okay, you know, let's make sure we give the students some priming. Let's, we're going to work on, you know, reducing this rocking because we're all on the same page. for so this is interruptive. You can't be awesome Johnny when you are engaged in this behaviour. And let's see if we can get the student uh, having a pleasant consequence when that behaviour is reducing. That could be through self-management. It could be delivering a consequence. It's hard for, for a teacher to be able to count behavior at that rate and reinforce improvement. But there are interventions where you're saying you're going and observing the student, taking data and making a contingency occur. If I was the teacher in that classroom and I had nothing else I could do, I would be engaging him in instruction to interrupt that behavior. Hey, Johnny, can you look up at the class here? Can you look down at, you know, line three and tell me what you're seeing there? And just can you sit in your chair strong while you're doing that? thank you so much for accepting my feedback there. You know, when you're sitting like that, you're being awesome, Johnny, or something like that. Give yourself five clicks. So even if there's nothing else you can do, engaging the student, having them aware of their behavior, and then reinforcing them when they're not doing that behavior. Sometimes I call it for teachers bomb dropping, which is ensuring that that student in particular is engaged in instruction and getting feedback. High rates of positive reinforcement when he's not engaged in that behavior, redirection perhaps when he is. Sit strong, Johnny, good job there. And then so there is things that you can do to ensure that behavior is not occurring. Look at the motivation. Ensure the environment is there's reinforcement that can be recruited when he's not engaging the behavior. Yeah, there's some some other things you can do even in a classroom when the, a teacher is has 20 other students to engage in to ensure that there is a different consequence to getting that sensory feedback in the moment, if that's what you've occurred is happening. Well, definitely some food for thought.
1: Um, I guess the yes. uh, last thing I just want to ask you is how to get a scent with your clients. You know, I kind of mentioned what we did in this scenario. Do you have any of the
0: strategies or thoughts? Well, yeah, making the environment so pleasant for a start, you know, ensuring that you consequent behavior that you want to see more of so you feel pleasant but mostly looking at the task that the student is engaged in is this a task that he has the skills to complete you know is it very difficult for him if it is then uh we'll refer to an upcoming episode um and uh that is going to help you look at the goal that you have and make sure that it's within the student's repertoire of behavior and not too difficult for them just what you said there, have the student engage where they're tracking their own data and engage in their own performance and, and that they have goals that are in line with, for instance, if you're working on handwriting, you know, what is the benefit to the student of getting better at handwriting? Is this a goal that you can set him and go, what would improve for you if your handwriting got better? And so, under, you know, the student is not just having something delivered to them, that they're tracking towards something, and that pleasant things occur when they're engaged with you. So lots of praise if that's reinforcing to the student. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm talking about, Johnny. Look at how you picked up the pencil just then. You know, look at how you just straightened the paper on your own without any of my feedback. So ensuring that you are strengthening and reinforcing behaviour that has the student engaged, that it's a pleasant task that's involved, and that great things happen when the student is engaged and involved in the activity. So, yeah, coming back to what you said at the beginning of Didi there, is this is an environment that promotes a student being engaged and is it being consequated? because remember I said the consequence matters, are they being consequented for that engagement and um, and assent in the program? If they're not, if the student is, in inverted commas, unhappy, if they're attempting to avoid your instruction, that should signal something very important that there's something about the environment or the task that is unpleasant to the student and that's where you know the analysis should start.
1: I guess we could go on and on there's so many examples here but I think you hit the nail on the head and yes consequence is king and we need to start looking at it a little closer especially in OT. Um, So
0: Mandy do you want to tell us what's coming up next week? So we have Amy Evans and Liz Lefebvre. Gosh, I really hope I said that right. <laughs> I'm sorry, Liz, if I didn't. Two awesome precision teachers with uh, a lot of experience in behavioural interventions with all sorts of students. They're going to come and talk to us about uh, the trick to writing smarter goals. That's really exciting. They're also going to talk to, uh, look at exactly what you're just saying there, look at the goal, ensure that it's tailored to the student and that you're starting in the right place for a student that has is tracking towards a larger goal, how to break that down, how to get fluent performance of each of the little components that you're working on towards a bigger goal. That's really exciting. Awesome. And a quick win from today's episode? Uh, Two quick wins actually that I just thought of is, first of all, the student is always right. And um, some OT's might be (laughs) surprised to say that that is predominant in behavioural intervention. If a student is doing something, it's because... They are being reinforced for it. And so, yeah, Skinner uh, coined this term that whatever the student is doing, you know, if we, we're making an environment that promotes them doing that. So we would look at their behavior first and then determine how to create an environment that promotes alternative behavior. If that's what we're trying to do, the student is always right. And then another quick win, and perhaps this is a resource as well, other than the World Health Organization is that we'll have, um, for those of you that want to start to take some data at first instance at least an ABC diary that helps you look at that motivating variable, the the environment, the setting in which this behaviour is occurring, the immediate antecedent, what the behaviour is defined and what the consequence is. So you can start to collect some data over time at least to try and hypothesise what the consequence is so that you can develop a consequence outside of an interruptive behaviour or a functional alternative consequence, I should say perfect and there are a couple of Facebook pages you could go our Facebook page uh, and a a group associated with that is the ABA podcast and it has information about prior episodes of our podcast and upcoming uh, information and then Aditi you have your own Facebook page the database OT for those OTs that are wanting to learn more about collecting data
1: Okay, so remember the most valuable resource we have is what? Each other. Without collaboration, our growth is limited to our own perspective. So hashtag collaboration over competition. Until next time, bye-bye from the Windy City. And from Down Under.